pastors are to be above reproach in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of the church. In the eyes of the world, and verse 7 tells us this of 1 Timothy 3, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We will study that more at length in weeks to come. But he is to have a good reputation with unbelievers. He's also to have a good reputation with believers. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says that the church is to look at those who have led them. They are to imitate their way of life. They are to look at them and they are to say, this is the way it's to be done. This is the pattern. These are the models for us. In 1 Peter 5.3, Peter says, you elders are to be examples to the flock. You are not to lord over them. You are to be examples to them. 1 Corinthians 11.1, the Apostle Paul said, follow me how? As I follow Christ. And so leadership is always modeling for the church. Leadership is always to be an example to those who they lead. Welcome to Verse by Verse, where we feature the biblical teaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff, who is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're able to follow along in your Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Or perhaps by now your Bible just automatically opens to that passage. Well, God's Standards for Church Leadership is the title of our series. Pastor Steve has reminded us that The overarching principle for church leaders is to be above reproach. That is what Paul says, chapter 3, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. That is, he must not be guilty of any accusation in his life. That doesn't mean that he is faultless, never sins, but there must not be any area of his life that is out of touch with the Spirit of God. Of course, this applies to all of us. So today on Verse by Verse, we're going to look at the topic of pugnaciousness. That should be a big hit. Now, here is Pastor Steve. To continue our study on 1 Timothy chapter 3, Standards for a Church Leader. And I was once again reminded just this past week of how important it is for leaders in the church to be above reproach. That is the key. That is what Paul says, chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. That is, he must not be guilty of any accusation in his life. That is to say that not that he's faultless, not that he never sins, but there must not be any area of his life that is out of touch with the Spirit of God and something that's obvious to all. And I was reminded again of this this last week. I know of a man who was raised in a Christian home. His mother was a child evangelism fellowship worker for years. He was raised in that type of, of atmosphere. But he's now in his 50s and he's hostile towards the gospel. And I know someone who met with him just recently and as they were talking things came out why there's such hostility towards the gospel. He's not just one who isn't interested in the gospel. He is one that when he was in the hospital racked with pain and someone said, can I pray for you? He said, no. Now, that's someone who's really hostile. And it came out in the conversation. The reason he is so hostile is because way back in his past, when he was a young boy, he observed the sin of a pastor. And I forget at this point what it was. Either the pastor took some money or ran off with a woman in the church or whatever it was. And he said right then and there, this is not for me, meaning Christianity is not for me. 
So very important. Now granted, we can say that's kind of a lame excuse, but it still is something that stood out in this young man's mind and even now in his 50s wants absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. Pastors are to be above reproach in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of the church. In the eyes of the world, and verse 7 tells us this of 1 Timothy 3, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We will study that more at length in weeks to come. But he is to have a good reputation with unbelievers. He's also to have a good reputation with believers. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says that the church is to look at those who have led them. They are to imitate their way of life. They are to look at them and they are to say this is the way it's to be done. This is the pattern. These are the models for us. In 1 Peter 5.3, Peter says you elders are to be examples to the flock. You are not to lord over them. You are to be examples to them. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the Apostle Paul said, Follow me how? As I follow Christ. And so leadership is always modeling for the church. Leadership is always to be an example to those who they lead. Now in 1 Timothy 3, we've been looking at the various areas of life elders are to be blameless in. First of all, we've seen the moral area of life. That is, they are to be husbands of one wife. That speaks of purity. In the area of purity, they are to be devoted to their wives. Secondly, there's the mental area. That is his thinking process. He's to be temperate. He's to be prudent. He's to be respectable, which basically means he is not rash. He is sane. He is balanced. He is well-disciplined in his mind and thinking. Then thirdly, we saw the area, and we are in that right now, the social area. That is, how does this individual relate to other people? You know, there are some people who are wonderful Bible scholars, and some people who are very well disciplined, and some people have moral purity in their lives, they just can't get along with anybody else. You know that. There are some people who have all the answers, they just can't cut it with people. When people see them coming, they turn the corner, they want to get away from them. And so the Apostle Paul deals with this very issue, how does he get along with people? Number one, he is to be hospitable, that is, he is to love strangers, love them to the point of opening his home to strangers. That's very important. And I might say by way of application, he is one whose home is to just be open. He is not to have the attitude of, I will invite you to my house if you invite me to your house. That is not hospitality. That is not hospitality. It's to invite people when you can't get them to invite you back. You know they're not going to invite you back. There's no hidden agenda there. There's no hidden motives. Secondly, and we looked at this just recently, he is to be able to teach. So that doesn't mean that he is to be a great pulpit teacher. That doesn't even mean he's to have the gift of teaching. It simply means that he is sensitive to communicate the truth. He communicates it in a non-threatening way. That's what it means. He gets along with people where he does not intimidate them as he teaches them. As he opens the scriptures, he knows where to go, he knows how to apply it, and he gently but firmly leads them to see the truth. And thirdly, we said last week he is not addicted to wine, not to be controlled by it. Now tonight we want to look at three more qualities an elder is to possess in the social area of life. And I want you to know, I think that these three qualities are often overlooked, but it is my opinion, it is only my opinion, that many men miss the mark at these three qualities. Many men. Number one, it says in verse three of First Timothy three, it says he is not to be pugnacious. Pugnacious. The King James Version translates this phrase, not a striker. You understand, he's not talking about labor unions here and strikes. I just want to mention that, lest somebody think that he's talking about that. No, he's talking about physically striking out at somebody. He's talking about hitting someone. That's what it means. He's talking about a quick-tempered man, a violent man who doesn't control his anger. I can't prove this, but I would assume that's where they get the term. There's a dog that is called a pug. Have you ever seen a pug? It looks like someone smashed their face in. 
They are wrongly named. If you know anything about the breed, they are the most mild-mannered dogs. I mean, if a human barked them, they'd run away. But they are called pugs probably because they look like they've been fighting. They have to push in face and their eyeballs stick out in the side of their head and so forth. That is a pug. This is where we get the word pugnacious. One who is a fighter. One who is a brawler. The same word is used in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Same expression, he is not pugnacious. But it's interesting that in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, this expression follows the expression not addicted to wine, which tells us something. It's very obvious. The conclusion is this, a person who loses control of his senses is also prone to lose control of his anger. And people who are drunk often strike out and become very physically violent. But there are many men who do not drink alcohol, and yet they have a problem with physical violence. Now, let me just say how practically this fits in. You don't want an elder who, when he disagrees with you, punches your lights out. That makes sense, right? I mean, this is talking about somebody who strikes out at you, who's going to take his fist and punch you, or is going to hit you or push you. You don't want fistfights in a board meeting. It's the last thing you want. I heard recently about something like that that happened. A pastor and a deacon went at it, and they just fought That's wrong, and that's what Paul is dealing with. You don't want leaders who can't control their anger. I remember growing up, I used to get into fights all the time. Then I got a little smart, and I realized I was losing all the time. So why bother going at this? Then I'll begin to negotiate, and I'll become a diplomat. But see, that may be acceptable in one sense, understandable at least when you're young. But when you mature, you don't go around solving problems by fighting with people. You don't do that. And you certainly can't do that in the church. And there are a lot of problems in ministry. A lot of problems. You just can't go around punching people in frustration. Anger out of control is very dangerous for a pastor. The Bible gives us the dangers of this. It was out of anger that Cain killed Abel. Stemmed from jealousy, but he couldn't handle his frustration. He killed his brother. It was Moses who in anger struck and killed the Egyptian. Now, the Bible doesn't commend him for that. Moses didn't know what was going on. Moses was really not sure of God's will. Moses was frustrated. And Moses struck and he killed an Egyptian. Moses, I believe, always had a problem with anger. Moses enraged through the tablets containing the Ten Commandments down. Now, maybe we can excuse that by saying that was righteous anger. We'll say that. But the story in Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13, says that when God told him to speak to the rock, to get water from it, he struck the rock twice. God would not tolerate that. That was a poor example, and that rock was a picture of Christ. He is not to strike Christ, but he did that in the sense of uh, type, and God dealt with him severely. He was not allowed into the promised land. God took his life. Peter had a problem with fighting. In John 18, when the Roman soldiers and the Jewish men come to arrest the Lord, Peter whips out his sword and he cuts the ear off of the high priest's servants. And I told you before, he was not going for the ear, he was going for the head. He was just poor. He was a fisherman. Gives us some insight on that. But he was one who was prone to be angry. There is an early piece of church literature called the Apostolic Canons. And this is what it says. Very interesting about someone who is a fighter in the ministry. I quote, A bishop, priest, or deacon who smites the faithful when they err, or the unbelievers when they commit injury, and desires by such means as this to terrify them, we command to be disposed. For nowhere hath the Lord taught us this. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. But the contrary, when he was smitten, he smote not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. See, an elder doesn't go around hitting people who disagree with him, or people who persecute him, or people who get on his nerves. He isn't a bully, and he's not bad-tempered. He is not to be a fighter. He is not to be a physical fighter. Men who hit their wives, 
men who hit their children and abuse them. And we're not talking about proper discipline now. We're talking about abusive hitting of wives or children are not to be elders. That's certainly out of the question. You see, God wants shepherds who are gentle with the sheep, not shepherds who beat them. An elder is a shepherd. You don't go beating the sheep. You may have to deal with them in discipline, but you don't go punching them because they do something wrong. Now, in this 20th century age that claims to be sophisticated, very seldom do you find someone who claims to be a Christian leader who would physically strike someone. We're not quite as obvious to do that. So let me take this principle a little bit further. Christian leaders may not strike out by punching someone. Everyone would know that's wrong. But they tend to strike out by verbally abusing people. You know that? Christian leaders are infamous for this. It's easier to recover from physical bruises than from verbal abuses. Verbal abuse is far more damaging than physical abuse. You ever hear the little child saying, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words or names will never harm me? That's not true. Names hurt a lot. And bones heal. But the scars of emotional name-calling are usually left forever. A bone heals. But verbal abuse usually does not. What am I talking about? I've known leaders who are sarcastic. I've known leaders who have biting words. They snap back at people. They use the pulpit to fight people. They use the pulpit to get back at them. If they've been criticized, they'll use the pulpit to strike back. They have an axe to grind. They say harmful things just to hurt someone. Someone who hurts them, they say it back. Malicious talk, gossip, slander. These are the things that an elder must not have. He must not be pugnacious, whether he fights physically or whether he fights verbally. He needs to be in control of his hands. He needs to be in control of his mouth because he needs to be in control of his heart. So that is the first area of the social concern that Paul has, at least in what we're studying tonight and how he gets along with people. He's not to be pugnacious. He's not to be a striker. He's not to ward off and hit somebody. Secondly, and this is really in contrast to being pugnacious, as Paul says, he is to be gentle. He's not pugnacious, but he is gentle. This word in the authorized version, the King James Version, is translated patient, but it means far more than patient. Far more than patient. It even means more than gentle, which is the way my version translates it. And the problem with translating this word is that this word is so full of meaning that there is no one English word that fully captures the beauty and the depth and the breadth of this Greek word. So let me try to convey to you the richness of this word by giving you a composite of other words that taken together conveys this meaning. The word conveys a willingness to yield when it comes to his own rights. When it comes to your rights, you yield. That is part of this word. It means fairness, sweet reasonableness. And I think that's the best translation. Sweet reasonableness, gentleness, a consideration of the feelings of others. It is a spirit of peace, congeniality, what we call it. A gentle man is a gracious man. One who exhibits a willingness to yield and patiently makes allowances for the weaknesses and the ignorances of fallen human nature. He's not one who carries a record around with him of wrongs done by others. He's one who understands human nature. He doesn't compute it back there and pull it out whenever there's a problem and just comes to his mind. And He refuses to retaliate. He doesn't insist on his own way. It's very interesting. In Psalm 86.5, you'd be interested to know how this is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there is a version of the Old Testament into the Greek language called the Septuagint. The Apostle Paul used it. It was written before Paul's time. And we read in Psalm 86, verse 
5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Isn't that interesting? I want you to know that this is the same Greek word when they translate it from the Hebrew, the expression ready to forgive, when they translate it from the Hebrew to the Greek as this word gentle that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is one who is ready to forgive, not one who holds a record of wrongs done at any moment's notice. He can just bring it to the forefront. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, we learn that Jesus is gentle. Jesus is gentle. Let's look there for a moment. This is the same Greek word, 2 Corinthians 10.1. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Paul says that the Lord Jesus Christ is meek and he's gentle. He is one who is fair. He is one who is patient. He is one who yields his rights. He is one who is gracious. In Philippians 4, 5, you gain more insight. There was a problem at the church at Philippi. It was a great church, but they did have a problem. And there were two women who were arguing over some things. And in Philippians 4, 5, we read, well, let's look at verse 1. Let's just read it down there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, they were not. These were two women who were fighting over something. They were not living in harmony. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. You know, the problem that Euodia and Syntyche had, and I don't know the specifics of it, but the solution to their problem is that they needed to have a forbearing spirit. That word forbearing means gentle, means yield your rights. Whatever the situation was, and these were two apparently Christian leaders in the church, two women who had helped Paul in the gospel, were now at odds with one another. And Paul said, if you want peace to come to the church and peace to come there, have a forbearing spirit. Have a spirit of gentleness. Have a spirit of peacefulness and sweet reasonableness and stop insisting on your own rights. For a pastor, this is indispensable. Has to have this. An elder has to give in to the opinions of others. Do you know that? Now, he doesn't give in to biblical doctrine. And he doesn't give in to the perspective of the word. But he has to yield when it comes to other things. Because there are some things that are just not that important. He can't insist on being right all the time. So important. He cannot insist on that. He has to be open to the criticism of others and their viewpoint. That's not easy, but that's why he's at the standard and level that he's at. He has to be one who is open to the criticism of others and their viewpoint. Now, it doesn't mean he has to agree with their criticism. I get criticized by people. Some things I think are ridiculous. Other things I think are valid. But he has to be open to listen, and he has to be gracious to them, even when he disagrees with them. He can't come across like he's domineering, like he's the immovable king. He's got to yield to others. That's the point of this. I've met men who are never wrong on anything. Have you ever met someone like that? They're never wrong. They can't be wrong. If they say it's this way, how dare you say that it's something else? They're never wrong. They can't be elders. They shouldn't be elders. If they're elders, they should not carry on that ministry. A man who comes across like he's always right isn't gentle. Now, we're not talking about once in a while you have a difference of opinion and maybe you get off track. We're talking about if this is the characteristic of your life, then Paul says you should not be an elder. You cannot be an elder. Cannot be like that. Can't be domineering. Can't be immovable. Has to admit he's wrong. Has to. Or he's not gentle. When dealing with the unsaved, folks, this is very important as well. In Titus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, 
Paul says he's to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, Titus is using this word gentle to say the whole church is to be this way. We're not to malign anyone. We're to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And look what he has to say here. What's the basis for this, being gentle with others? For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying this. In other words, we are to show non-Christians the same gentleness and consideration that God has showed us in saving us. That's all. Be patient with their shortcomings because the Lord's been patient with yours. So when you're dealing with unsaved folks, remember that you were once like that and God has been so gracious to you. So be gracious with them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we've looked at this before, but we keep coming back to it because it is a key verse. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrongs, and here's that word in verse 25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. There is to be a gentleness about the man. He is not to dominate. He is not to be ungracious. He is to be gentle, even with the unsaved, as he meets with them. Primarily, though, a shepherd has to be gentle with the sheep. It is one thing to be gentle with those outside the flock, but it's also true that we must be gentle with those who are the flock. If you're not gentle with the sheep, you will exasperate them. You will drive them away. An elder who is never wrong can frustrate the people he's trying to minister to. They won't come to him for advice. They won't come to him for any help. He has to be understanding of the sheep, even if there are strange sheep. And believe me, there are some strange sheep. And there are sheep who would want to, or at least in being peculiar, would tend to exasperate the shepherd. But an elder is to be above that. And he is to be one who does not exasperate them, does not frustrate them. One man put it this way, so many wrongs, disagreements, faults, hurts, and injustices exist in a sinful world that one would be forced to live in perpetual division, anger, and conflict if it were not for gentleness. Listen, in the church you have all kinds of people, all kinds of strange things people tell you, all kinds of horrible things that go on in people's lives, all kinds of injustices, all kinds of problems, and you must be gentle with them, or else you will drive them away. People will not tolerate that. So, we have found out tonight, first of all, Paul says, he is not to be a fighter. Secondly, he is to be gentle. But there is a third area, and that is, he is to be uncontentious. Uncontentious. Let me start off by reading... A quote, a part of Gene Getz's very good book, The Measure of a Man. This is how he opens his chapter on the topic of being uncontentious. Tom is a smart, outgoing, successful businessman. He is president of his own company, and he's doing well, in fact, very well. He enjoys being top dog. His relatively small staff works hard to carry out his orders. Six months ago, Tom was elected to serve as an elder in his church, but there was something about Tom that no one really knew. As long as he was calling the shots and making all the decisions, he was happy, easy to live with, and cooperative. But when he was just one among equals, it was a different story. To everyone's surprise, Tom always seemed to take an opposite point of view from everyone else on the board. If it was his idea, fine, but if the ideas came from someone else, he could never seem to get excited about it. In fact, he would do all he could to find reasons why it wasn't workable. Needless to say, Tom literally destroyed the unity among the group of men. His contentious attitude and behavior became an almost invincible roadblock to consensus. He forced a vote on every issue, which usually came out eight to one against Tom. The term contentious means a quarreler. 
a person who always seems to have a chip on his shoulders. As we have learned today, a shepherd has to be gentle with the sheep. A church leader who is not gentle with the sheep will drive them away. An elder who is never wrong can frustrate the people of the church. They won't come to him for advice. In the church, there are all kinds of people, all kinds of strange things people will say, all kinds of horrible things that go on in people's lives, all kinds of injustices or problems. And a pastor must be gentle with them or else they will be driven away. Well, thank you for tuning in to our verse-by-verse broadcast for today. If you would like to sign up for the verse-by-verse podcast, please go to versebyverseradio.org and click the podcast sign-up link. That's versebyverseradio.org. As we have found out on today's broadcast, Paul said a church leader is not to be a fighter. Secondly, he is to be gentle. On our next broadcast, we are going to see that church leaders are to be peaceful. So please, join us next time.